So before we uh, dive in and dissect those words, those many words, this great watershed moment, um, I think it's appropriate to kind of give you just a recap of the purpose of this whole series and what exactly it is that we're trying to, to drive home. The book of Exodus, as you know, is a real story of real people, real events, real history that really took place. But by God's inspiration, it's also a book that mirrors the life of a Christian in so many different ways. For instance, think of how the book of Exodus starts out. You've got God's people enslaved, in oppression, unable to lift a finger to redeem themselves, to rescue themselves. They're, they're stuck, kind of like you and I when we come into this world. We're We're stuck. We're enslaved in our sin, dead in sin, unable to lift a finger to rescue ourselves from the oppression that we're in. We need a deliverer, and just like the Israelites, God sent them Moses, raised him up to deliver the people from their sin, deliver them from their enslavement. So also for us, God sends us Jesus, right, to deliver us from our oppression, to deliver us from our enslavement to sin. And with the Israelites, God says, I'm not just going to free you, I'm going to lead you to a promised land, a land flowing of milk and honey, which is not some Willy Wonka fantasy, but uh, milk and honey, if you think about it, uh, milk and honey really were synonymous for the two uh, most desirable, appealing tastes, fat and sugar. And so essentially what this meant to the ancients was, I'm going to lead you to a land that is more appealing than anything you can conceive of or think of right now. Kind of like us. Where God says, I'm not just going to free you from your sin, I'm going to lead you, Christian, to your own promised land, a land that is way better than a chocolate factory, but a land that is more appealing than anything you can think of, more appealing than anything you could possibly conceive, because it's going to be with me in a place without sin for the rest of your existence. Pretty awesome. But the mirror doesn't stop there. If you know the story of Exodus, you know that once they were delivered, they didn't get right to the promised land. God would lead them, but they ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, a literal lifetime, right? Going through trials and suffering as God was leading them. They weren't wandering aimlessly. God was leading them and God was discipling them all along the way just like he does for us. That as badly as you and I sometimes would just say, just take me. <laughs> just, can I just go? <laughs> can I just go to this promised land called heaven right now? God is leading us for a lifetime as we seem to wander this life filled with highs, filled with lows, filled with trials, filled with sufferings, filled with ups and downs, but we're not wandering aimlessly. Our God is leading us every step of the way. Our God is there for us, our God is loving us, and our God will ultimately get us to that promised land. Now today, the event that we get to look at that's uh, mirrored into our lives is the event that we just uh, read, watershed moment, a defining moment. I'll talk about that a little bit later. And that event was the crossing of the Red Sea, arguably the greatest miracle, maybe in the Old Testament, at least certainly in uh, the book of Exodus. The crossing of the Red Sea, the deliverance that God brings about here, and what that mirrors in our lives is none other than the miracle, the powerful watershed moment for us, the defining moment for us, called baptism. Now, in case you think 
All right, Pastor Cook, you took a little too much time off. I think you're reading into this a little too much. Uh, go ahead and check out 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul brings up this analogy and analog- analogizes. He makes it a, a metaphor right to baptism as well. He connects it. Just as God would deliver his people and crush his enemies through this watershed moment, isn't that what baptism does for us too? Delivers us and crushes us from our greatest sin. Not only that, he gives us a brand new identity. Now here's where the rubber meets the road. If we have such a brand new identity, if we have such this defining moment that happened, and for a lot of us it happened, you know, before we could even, we can't even remember it, why doesn't it seem like it's changing me? Maybe to put it another way, why does it seem like I'm still enslaved to all of those other things from the past? Like my sin, my struggle, or maybe appropriately my, my thoughts, my despair, my anxiety, my fear, my depression, my bitterness, my hatred, my anger. Why are all those things seeming like they're just controlling me? But I'm supposed to be this new child. I'm, I'm supposed to be this uh, redeemed person, and yet I feel so enslaved to those other things. So is this really a, a big deal? Why aren't I different? And I've talked with, counseled with a number of people who feel that way, who walk into a building like this and admit, uh, yeah, I, I know my sins. <laughs> I don't need to be reminded of them. I still feel like I'm enslaved to them. I, I've talked to people who even walk away from here saying, I, I still don't know if I am forgiven. That's real, right? Satan wants to use anything he can to get a foothold into our lives and, and control us. And what it's kind of symptomatic of is a, uh, I didn't coin this phrase, but uh, it's, it's kind of called spiritual amnesia. Spiritual amnesia. It's really what it means is we forget about God. We forget about what he's done. We forget about all the things that he has done for us. And in the moments of our lives, we forget that he's there. We forget he's powerful. And suddenly we look at our circumstances and they're huge and our God is small if non-existent. And maybe the biggest spiritual amnesia moment in all of scripture is right here. Because as great as this miracle is, what was it, what, what preceded it? We'll get into that with the Israelites. Give you a recap of how we got here. Ten plagues, right? Ten plagues that God sent on the Egyptians, sent on Pharaoh to let my people go, to loosen his grip. And after that tenth and final plague, guys, God ratcheted up the volume so that Pharaoh would listen. Pharaoh finally gets the hint. He lets go of the Israelites. God leads them out with Moses, and he has them take a turn and camp on the banks of the Red Sea. So the Red Sea is in front of them. And then God does something that if we were God, we would never do this, and this is why God is so awesome. He goes to the heart of Pharaoh and turns his heart so that Pharaoh changes his mind again and says, forget it. Uh, We're going to pursue them. Let's get the entire army out in force and let's go chase after them and let's enslave them again. Like I said, not exactly how you and I would do it. And so what happens is Pharaoh's army, his chariots, his horsemen, they come right up behind the Israelites and it looks like that for these millions of Israelite civilians, they're easy prey. Because what they see is a Red Sea in front of them and to their backs on the horizon... That's a lot of chariots. That's a lot of horsemen. That's a big army. And feeling stuck between a rock and a hard place, they can't go forward and they certainly know what's coming behind them. How do they react? 
You heard it. They let Moses have it, right? Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us here to die in the desert? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Ouch. Pretty harsh words, right? Not to mention delusional, right? They, they wanted to be freed. They wanted to be no longer enslaved. And now they're saying, oh, our, our options are we're just going to die. We, we had it so much better when, when Pharaoh and his taskmasters were whipping us and, and making us, forcing us into slavery. Hey, Moses, you should have just left us alone. It's delusional. But you can understand why they started to think this way. Put yourself in their shoes and you'd see the same problems. You'd see the same situations. You might even come to the exact same conclusions. We're stuck. And more than that, it seems like our end is near. But it kind of begs the question, why did they think that after everything that God had just done for them? Like they had, they had just seen ten plagues. The Nile River turned to blood. And then gnats and flies and locusts. I hate bugs. <laughs> I can't imagine. And then hail and darkness. And then you had a plague of a firstborn and some other things in between there. But God had just done all of that. Not to mention that God didn't just do that in the past, but he had also been leading them through this pillar of cloud and fire by day and night. He was right there with them, and yet they were so consumed with what God wasn't doing, forgetting everything that God had done, so focused on their circumstances, so focused on their problems that it's like their, the memories of their hard drives were erased. They could not compute what God was doing, that he might just be setting up an even greater miracle than what he had just been doing. And they freaked out. They panicked. And they lashed out. And it's really easy from our perspective in retrospect to look at this and say, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I, why would they do that? Why would they? Oh, ye of little faith, right? Until we realize that's actually part of our problem too. This, this spiritual amnesia that we have. Because let me ask you something. Think back to the last time you freaked out. Internally or externally. The last time you lashed out. The last time you cried out, maybe. You panicked. Maybe the last time that you lost that night's sleep because you were up all night thinking about that thing. Think of that person in your life that when you see them, when you even just hear their name or think of their face, your body goes through these physiological changes. You, you tense up. The spike of adrenaline comes up. Your, your heart just begins to beat faster and faster and faster because you're just filled with rage, bitterness anger at that person, what they said, what they did, how they got away with it. Think of the loss. That you don't just mourn. You're in utter despair. Hopelessness. All of those things, you know what happens, right? They control you. They control your thoughts. They control your emotions. They control your actions. And you let it. 
essentially what you're doing is when those things come along, you're letting those things call the shots. You're enslaving yourself to those things because you're forgetting everything that God has done. And you start to think to yourself, like the Israelites, I, I don't get it. All this just to happen now? I thought God is supposed to be good. I thought God is supposed to be loving. Why, why would he allow this to happen? Why is he allowing this person to do such terrible things and get away with it? Injustice? And where is the justice, God? I thought you're supposed to be a just God as well as a loving God. And, and you know, I, I'm just, maybe you lash out and say, I, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get the point of all of it. I, this Christianity thing, this following Jesus thing, this being his disciple, being a Christian. What's the point? Where is he? We're not that different from the Israelites, right? We suffer from the same problem, and that problem, maybe you could summarize as this. Our problem is we focus too much on what God isn't doing instead of focusing on what God has already done. It's that spiritual amnesia. We think so many times, oh, he should be doing this, God, you should be... But what would happen if we started focusing on what he's already done? Like Moses, he didn't exactly have a, a plan of exactly what God was going to do. He was just submitting himself to what God was telling him to do. Similarly, I know we'd love to have the answers. I'd love to be able to tell you, well, here's why God is allowing that person in your life. Well, here's why God is allowing this event. Well, here's why God is allowing all these things to... I haven't a clue. And those answers that we, we, we curiously want to know, nobody knows. God alone knows. And he's not telling but does he need to? What if instead we remembered his goodness of everything that he's done to us already? Let me just cut right to the chase. What if we remembered the cross? Like that cross that, that's there and in, in so many other places. It's not just a piece of jewelry, but it's, it's a message, right? What if we remember there that Jesus didn't just die on the cross? What did he do? He crushed the devil's head. That very first gospel promise that God made, he will crush your head. That's what Jesus did. Public enemy, number one, the biggest, baddest guy, gone, done. Jesus took care of it. And not just that, your sin, gone. This thing that would separate you from God for eternity. And Jesus said, I paid for it with my blood, with my life. Your victory is secured. And to prove that victory is secured, what happened three days later? He didn't just stay dead, he burst out of that tomb as if to say, ta-da, I told you, I told you I would win. I told you that the victory is won. But just as I rose, you will rise too, that the battle, the war is over, and I won that war for you. And so if the war is already over, if your victory is already guaranteed in Jesus, what have you got to freak out about? What have you got to panic about? If God has already done the impossible, if God has already done the thing you and I could not do, delivered us, then why would we go around 
and letting these other things, other people, other events control us and lead us down paths of despair and hatred and rage and bitterness and all these sorts of things on this roller coaster ride of emotions, why would we focus so much on our problems thinking like they're so huge like an Egyptian army and think that our God is so small like he can't do anything? It's, it's not logical. It doesn't make any sense. Sometimes we forget. Like the Israelites. Spiritual amnesia. But our God is so good. Because just like the Israelites, he didn't give up on them. They cried out, they lashed out, and God answered with grace. A powerful miracle. What does he do? He, he comes and he separates the Israelites from the bad army that's coming, Pharaoh's army, and he has Moses stretch out his hands and, and he makes a path the Red Sea. Not just a shallow fjord, but we're told wall of water on the right and left side, right? <laughs> like how, how cool this eye would be if just, you know, I don't know how tall it would be, but wow. And, and imagine, he says, now you just walk through. Dry ground, walk through to the other side. I've got this. Before we, we talk a little bit more about that, you might be thinking sometimes, really, these people, God, these people who lashed out at you, these people who were so quick to judge you, who were so quick to leave you, these people, that's who you want to save. Yep. Why? Because that's grace. It's not about the people, it's about God. Or to put it this way, God's grace isn't about your faithfulness. It's about God's goodness. God isn't about to say, oh, well, that's how you feel. Oh, that's what you're doing? Okay, fine. I'm not going to say. Nope. God doesn't look and say, measure up their faithfulness. But think about those people for a moment. Think about those people who crossed through those waters. You had young, you had old. You had grandparents, great-grandparents. You had parents. You had 20-somethings. You had teens. You had toddlers. You had infants being carried in a mother's arm, right? You had all of these people going through the water. Think of the range of faith you had in those people. Some of those people probably looking at that wall of water and just like, this is awesome. This is so cool. I, they're probably singing and dancing, like moving on up to the east side. I will not sing that song. Whatever side it was, right? They were going and they were so filled with joy. And then there were some people who were probably, does this sound like you? Don't look, take my hand, cross my fingers, just get me there because I just don't, these waters come down. I just can't even think about it. Lots of faith, little faith, lots of joy, little joy whole range of spectrum of emotions and people. But the point was, if you went through those waters, you were saved. God delivered you. Kind of like baptism, right? Young and old, a whole range of faith and emotion, even creating faith. You were baptized, God, God saves you. The cool thing with this watershed defining moment for the Israelites, which I'll talk about in just a second. He didn't just deliver them, but he simultaneously crushed those enemies, right? They get to the other side, and what's he do? All right, Pharaoh, go on. So they do. They take the bait, and they go through, only for God to crash and collapse those waters all over them. And as the morning came and the Israelites on the other side of the shore saw those dead bodies, those corpses wash up, 
That was a powerful visual moment and reminder for them of what? To show them you're free. They can't hurt you anymore. Do you see what I did to them? They will never enslave you. They will never be able to oppress you ever again. You don't belong to them anymore. You belong to me. And the thing is, is until I started studying for this, this text, I never realized just how defining of a moment this was until I did a little more digging. There's this phrase that God keeps coming up, with, uh, keeps coming up in the Bible again and again and again that God uses with the Israelites to point back to this moment. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Who brought you up out of Egypt? Who brought you up out of Egypt? And I see this repeated in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and so many different books of the Bible in the Old Testament. And I started to count. And I counted and I counted and I stopped counting when I reached 100. Because <laughs> I know there's many more than 100, but I started to realize, okay, this is a pretty important moment. Why? Well, think about it. If you know anything about the Israelites, you know how quick they were to turn, Right? How quick they were to defy, to grumble, to complain, to lash out, to forget. Sound like anybody you might know? And so God reminds them, reminds their future generations of what he did to their ancestors. I'm the Lord your God. Who brought you out of Egypt? You remember the stories that they told you? You remember what was written down? I, I crushed Pharaoh's army. I redeemed you. I delivered you. I, I said, you're mine. I did it all for you. That's who you are. You're not a slave to them. You're, you're serving to me. And the same way, God reminds us of that too, doesn't he? God reminds us again and again and again of our identity. Every time we see a baptismal font, Every time we see a cross, maybe when we look at some of these stained glass windows around us with all these stories, every time we recall God's grace, every time we have a friend who tells us to our faces, I forgive you, God forgives you, you're forgiven, you're loved. Every time we have a pastor who, hopefully more than once a week, but at least once a week, right, I get to, I get to take us back to the gospel. We get to go, go and take you back to the cross, the empty tomb, and say, that's... That's who you are. You're not a slave. You're not a slave to those emotions. You're not a slave to, to the events, the people. No, you're, you're God's child. And as great as that is, we struggle living it out. Again and again, we, we seem to forget. and We seem to go back to letting those old things take care of us, right? The events, the people, the thoughts. We let our concerns turn to worry and doubt. We forget God. We, we mourn a loss, but we let it turn into despair and utter hopelessness. We forget God and what he's done. We, we want justice, but then when we let it turn to bitterness and malice and anger, we forget God, right? And yet, like the, the Israelites, he doesn't just give up. He doesn't say, I can't believe, oh, ye of little faith, you're done. I'm done with you. I can't believe you. How could you? No, he just doles out more grace on them. And he reminds them and future generations again and again of everything I've done the cross, the empty tomb, all the promises, as if God were saying to you more than a hundred times, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of your sin, 
who brought you out of your slavery to this world and Satan. I beat them. I defeated them. They can't control you anymore. Your victory's won. So you have a choice. You can leave here, you can go through life, and you can focus on one of two things. You can focus on all the freaking out that happens on, with any given event on any given daily basis. You can look at your circumstances, you can look at the things going on, and you can just think, like, this is, this, this is out of the control. What's going on? I don't know why God is doing You can think and let those things consume your emotions, consume your heart, consume your thoughts. You can live out of fear, or you can live out of faith. And remember, God is in control, despite what's going on. That God has a plan, even if we're not clued in on it, but you don't need to know what God isn't doing because you know what God has already done. You can remember Jesus. You can remember your baptism. You can remember a cross. You can remember an empty tomb. You can remember a service like this where we get to confess our sins right away and, and hear God's unequivocal, absolute forgiveness. You can, you can recall Bible passages and promises of God's love, God's grace, everything that he's done for you. And you can realize, if my victory is already won, why would I let those things control me? Why would I enslave myself to those things? Why would I let them get the last say? I have God. He washed me. He saved me. He put his name on me. I belong to him. And as the passage says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, all of us come before you knowing that we've lived this last week and much longer enslaved to something other than you. Whether our thoughts, whether our actions, whether our emotions were caused by an event, a person, a thing, Lord, so many times we forget you. We all suffer from this spiritual amnesia that just takes us away from you and your goodness and focuses uh, on the problems that we have, thinking that they're so bigger, so much bigger than you. Lord, it's so good to just come in the quietness of a place like this or in a study of your word and hear you speak to us. I fear of all the mighty acts that you've done for your people of old and for, your, for us too. Not the least of which is your sacrifice on that cross. You crushed, Satan said. You redeemed us from our sin. You guaranteed our victory with the empty grave. What, what do we have to fear? Lord, we know it's not as simple as just saying we'll never struggle with this ever again. So we ask for your spirit. We ask for your guidance. We ask for you to remind us of all the goodness that you've done so that we can be still, as Moses told the Israelites. We can remember that you're God. And we can remember always of the goodness that you've done for us. That you're not about to leave us. Give us that strength. Give us those memories. And give us that peace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.